it's very difficult to get through the crust of scams and pumping up schemes and crypto bros who are just shilling coins and trying to make money and buy their Lambos, as they say. But once you get past that, you do see that there are, for the most part, a lot of the people who are working on the core technology and the value proposition of a lot of the technology that's being presented in the space. There's just, there's this phrase that I have never heard anyone say. I summarized it. It's my synthesis of the environment. It's, we're not here for money. We're here to not need it. And I think that's something that I believe to be like a really core tenet that I'm seeing throughout the space, especially with those like who are building things like Seeds, building Regen Network, building Ixo, building Gitcoin is sure, you know, the value of a token goes up and you might have a ton of money. But what that means is you can redistribute energy from one part of the system into another part of the system and you can create an entire new economy, a micro market around a solutioning event. For trying to do something and create incentives. There's there's a lot of things that present themselves in, in, this, in this space as useful and they're not necessarily useful. But then there's a lot of things that are extremely useful, but to be able to explain the technology, to say how it is that it's useful, you have to go through an entire translation layer. And so how do you decipher this? Maybe you can just focus on where the positive externalities touch the rest of everything else. Greetings, future fossils. Happy full moon. Happy new year. I am delighted to present episode 180 of the podcast that explores our place in time, which, although this episode was recorded live at Complexity Weekend in the middle of November of last year, I think nonetheless, in a coarse-grained kind of way, bears deep relevance to the ongoing evolution of our lives as they exist in a kind of superposition between the physical and the virtual This episode, I host a panel on Web3 from a complex systems point of view with four brilliant and not entirely aligned people. So it gets interesting and dissonant in ways that I think are very important to furthering the discourse around the potential, the promise, and the possible challenges or uh, hazards of this new layer of the internet. The guests here are Shirley Beckins, MPA, independent writer and researcher, Park Bach, researcher at figment.io and librarian at Gitcoin, Sidant Srivitsava, researcher at Singapore University of Technology and Design, iTrust Center for Research in Cybersecurity, and Avul Gwenin Kalu. I hope I said that right founder at Kairos Research and research coordinator at Active Inference Lab. These are four extremely smart people, all of whom have a deep familiarity with the non-linearities of complex systems, but four very different priors as far as understanding the landscape of distributed ledger technologies and how they will interface with, augment, and complicate the web as most people are currently familiar with it. This is a conversation of great import, and I'm very glad to share it. But before we do, I have to give an enormous thanks to all of the people who have been showing up to support the show on Patreon, because God knows I complained a lot about the challenge of running this podcast while hosting, while also doing my day job at the Santa Fe Institute and helping to raise 
two small children. We are currently about 22% of the way to the goal of 1,000 true fans, as Kevin Kelly put it on Patreon. And so I thank all of you, uh, but a special thanks to all of the new supporters. Oof, hold on tight. Earl Washington Kelly, Coleman Teckle, Tim Fogarty, Coe Douglas, Nick White, Adria, Henry Andrews, Rex Washburn, Kelly Matthews, Holly Grimm, Mary Charlotte Domandi, Dalton Sesumis, Nar Martinez, Marshall Murphy, Ulrika Anderson, Krista Luang, Deb Fearin, Bobby Levy, Jesus Gatos, Daniel Lorsch, John Lipkowski, Shibi, and of course, folks that have purchased my music on Bandcamp. I love you too. And given the tenor of this particular episode, yes, baby guy, <laughs> speaking of tenors, you're more of a soprano at this point, little dude. An extra special thanks to the Reincarnation podcast and the listeners of that show for their financial support as well. Yay, yay, yay. Thank you all. Baby steps. Perhaps by the end of this year, I will no longer be beholden to the Kronos paycheck and I can continue to deepen and diversify the offerings of that which is supported through my own chirotic wanderings through the noosphere. One thing in particular I would really like to get back into, by the way, is the musical and narrated time-lapse art videos that I used to do while I was on festival tour, which I will link to in the show notes. A lot of people have been telling me that they really appreciated those and would love to see more. And, well, you know, the answer to that help me make time to make art so that I can blend it with the music and podcast excerpts into a synesthetic immersive adventure into the frothy edges of the known and knowable. Anyway, thank you all. I love you. I'm excited. If you're listening to this show for the first time, please go check the show notes and the show notes of prior episodes because the wealth of learning resources that we have constellated here goes very, very deep indeed. And stay tuned in the next coming weeks because some of the best episodes of Future Fossils ever recorded are in the hopper. The next one is with Jim Rutt, with whom I discuss the prehistory of what he and Jordan Hall and others call Game B, which I think bears mightily on the conversation that we're talking about now, as well as a four-way discussion I had with my friend Christian Lemp of the Diamond Dow and John Hillis and Zach of Creator Cabins Dow. Also, a romp into the microscopic with Siv Watkins, the magical woman behind microanimism.com, Roland Harwood of weareliminal.co, and many more. Smash the subscribe button. Thank you so much. Enjoy this episode. And if I can get my act together, 
The next episode will be out sooner than two weeks. Patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thank you and enjoy. Hello and welcome everyone to Complexity Weekend, November 2021. This will be a special crossover event with some Complexity Weekend Future Fossils Fusion. Without further ado, I will pass it to Michael Garfield for facilitating the rest of this discussion. Thanks everybody for joining and really excited to hear what you all have to share. Daniel and and hi everyone. It's uh, strange to host this and gather where it would seem as though there was no one listening from the other side of this weird virtual panel discussion table that we have here. But we're not we're not here to talk about demoralizing skeuomorphic virtual event design. This is the third of these live Future Fossils recordings I've done with Complexity Weekend. And my hope is that each conversation is as fresh and different as the lineup of guests here. So I have ideas for how this could go, but given that this isn't something that I can really model in my head, what I think we should do is have everybody on this panel give a brief introduction to themselves and to their work and to the importance that they see their work providing or like the value, the necessity of their work to the world, basically. Because I think from that, we'll, we'll be able to identify some pretty obvious points of intersection and dig in. Uh, so with that, I guess let's have Park go first. Yeah, so my name is Park Firebach. I work in Web3 technology, and I, uh, because of an interest in complexity science in the first place, and seeing that there were these emergent systems happening um, within Web3 and cryptocurrency spaces, and so um, it, the, both of those things kind of fed into one another, and now I do it as a job. So I, I work for a staking service as a provider. Um, <laughs> without being jargony, it just means we um, support inf internet infrastructure for the new web. Uh, and then I also work with Gitcoin, who uh, tries to do basically self-perpetuating public goods infrastructure and um, trying to provide space for those things. Sure. So I am Sid and I work for my communities in the local physical world that happens to be my communities in Singapore, where I am right now, and uh, India, and the different countries where I have friends, like many of you here. And on the internet, I serve the internet community through various means. And that means right now I'm working for Web3, like Park. And I've been exploring this whole rabbit hole of... Uh, how critical infrastructure is being built for the physical world uh, in my physical job, physically demanding job. And then there's a digitally demanding job where we are building digital public goods and digital infrastructure for the internet. So that's where my role uh, in the kernel community, which is a Web3 school or a new form of internet-based education um, and a community of practice comes in. And that's where uh, work in different DAOs like Gitcoin, which is exclusively focused on public goods, come, comes into the picture. So, so yeah, uh, complexity helps to bind all this together. And I think that's why we are all here. Invited you onto this panel as the fourth point of the tetrahedron, if you will, or like the, the one out in left field. Could you uh, care to introduce your <laughs> distinctly different in a way that makes a difference? 
Sure. Wow. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm honored. Let's see. So my background is, is different than Park and SIDS. So I basically have worked for a couple of decades in communities developing affordable housing, along with some, <clears throat> excuse me, integrated health care and social service facilities. And, you know, so after doing this work for so long, you know, actually from the very start, I was puzzled and thinking about, are we doing this the right way? Are there other ways and perspectives that could be helpful? And uh, so that did lead me to uh, systems thinking as well as complexity science. But uh, on the other hand, too, in some ways, there's some commonalities here. Besides, everybody lives in a community. So that, that's obviously a commonality. But I also work really as a volunteer on civic tech initiatives in different communities through Code for America. And so that really, I think, is a, is a great opening for me to think about having community centered around technology. Excellent. And Avel? Hello, Michael. First of all, uh, learn that you want to be critically optimistic about blockchain and this is a very good way to uh, welcome a new thing. So I'm trained in cognitive science and physics. I'm one of the like 10 people who's actually relating in complex systems. This is not a honor or something. This is like fun fact. What I've kind of drifted away from academia for a basic reason, which is basically for those who are aware of it, Tolchin's work on social, uh, how do you say, social democratic, structural demographic uh, cycles. We have good reason to believe that the current dominant model yeah, touching cloud dynamics, as uh, Daniel says, uh, that the current dominant model is uh, crumbling and that we have to build new things. I don't think academia is good at it. So I've uh, funded or helped organize, as you will, something called Kairos Research, uh, formerly Kairos Cloud Dynamics, which is a lab which is meant to help understand and design organizations that are sustainable and that are intelligent. And now for the last year, I was mainly interested in active inference and, and activism, which are uh, competing but complementary theories or metatheories of how cognition is grounded in material beings. I don't think you'll have to justify the significance of that particular work to any that applies to all of you. So, one, you know, one thing that I, I saw in common in your four biographies, I think is, you know, made clear just now is that all of you are in one way or another committed to actually the way that uh, Avel says it in his complexity week in bio I really appreciate applying this field of research to understanding human societies and building social organization that will withstand the test of the Anthropocene so just as a way of placing this conversation in uh, space and time addressing it for the hypothetical future archaeologists that are digging this up. Uh, I think all of us recognize in one way or another that the models we were operating on for the last few hundred years are, if not wrong at the scale at which they were devised, problematic at the scale at which they are currently deployed. And there's something that I find really interesting in trying to apply a complex systems lens to specifically the restoration of the commons and of public goods that I'm, I'm interested in and, and, you know, holding it in, you know, in tandem with 
this question of what ultimately is value and you know how do wild non-designed evolutionary ecosystems sorry hold on just a second i have a, a real bug in my throat bugs are okay it's a feature actually how is it that evolved ecosystems account for resources and distribute resources and then contrasting that against the orientations that we've come up with both in the public and private sector and how those things, you know, basically almost, you know, like a biomimetic kind of approach, like what is Web3 doing if we look at it through the lens of evolutionary ecology, where is it, you know, an effective use case and where is it making things more complicated than they have to be? You know, we had a, we had a conversation about centralization that this, you know, that, that called to this a couple of years ago, I'll link to in the show notes, but yeah, I mean, this is a very broad place and I want to, I want each of you to feel invited, welcome to, to just chime in here. So let's see, let's do Sid and then, and then park for thoughts on this stuff. Sure. So just to bridge the introductions with what Michael just said, like all of us mentioned community or society in our introductions, like serving the community as a part of it. And we can start there and connect it to how it's connected to ecology and different concepts. So firstly, all of us are not focused exclusively on web-based societies. Like when we say web, we mean the interconnected nature of humans as a species and with the environment as well. So I really like to introduce this concept of society as the pathetic dot theory or the four pillars of society which are affecting all of us, which are technology, culture, policy and economics. Like these are these can be considered as four independent pillars which, uh, yeah, which interdependently affect each other and then affect all of us. And likewise, when we change any of these four pillars, there's a change in all the other three as a result of it. So, for example, when we build Web3 technology, there's a sudden influx of people who come in to get a financial benefit out of it. That happens with most new technologies because they come in to fill a need. So, so the economic activity comes first, then somehow culture shifts as a result of so many people taking part in it. And then culture, technology, and economics evolves as a part of all these changing forces. And finally, policy catches up. And regulators who, who have the responsibility to keep society stable and not just rift apart due to these sudden changes, they, they have to keep up with it. So then we see the changes of policy on all the other three aspects. So looking at that system of like socioeconomic regulation, it's very similar to how the human body also regulates itself. Like autoregulation is a very natural phenomena in all biological systems. And we see that in society as a biological organism. So when we talk about economy or ecology, we should consider the root word of that eco, which is derived from oikos, which means household or the home. So economy is the study of the management of the household or ecology is the study of study of the home. So yeah, that whenever we talk about serving society or community, we are essentially serving our homes. And that's how I like to approach these topics. Mark? Sure, yeah. I mean, I'd love to, I think you summarize a lot of my thinking as well quite beautifully, Sedant. And I think that's because you and I are now a lot of very similar thought camps in the spaces that we explore within Web3 itself. But 
One of the things that I'm really interested in, specifically when it comes to like looking at this new organizational structure within Web3, is that for the most part, in line with what you were mentioning earlier, Michael, is that it's a rejection of a lot of these norms and seeing that a lot of these things are broken. And so I like to I like to call it it's an economy of dissidents. It's a bunch of people who don't necessarily like the old system. And so they're exploring and willfully considering new economic organization structures and really building that into the way that they um, operate within the space. There's a lot of experimentation and uh, willingness to fail. And I think where that feeds really well into this question of complexity science is that complexity is a failure event. It's a continuous exploration of all possibilities and and creating these like dynamic approaches to solutioning and responsive phenomena in in inference and any one of these you know terminologies you want to use to approach this definition of complexity that so often escapes everyone who tries to do so so I find that when, what is most fascinating to me, especially about Web3 and its approach to trying to solve problems, is that there's just so much experimentation and so much willingness to continue experimenting. And there is a little bit of an approach that comes that emerges from that process that has a lot to do with first principles thinking. You know, looking at where problem is failing and recognizing that the problem cannot be solved if the problem is already in existence. Oftentimes, you have to build an entirely new system and fork off from the very base structure, how it is that that system is made and, and build new phenomena into the system that account for the failure of the previous system. And so where you see that beautifully is, is in, in many ways is right now, I think we're really setting the ethics in a big way. There's a lot of different components. We're looking at how the economy fits together, how the ecology needs to live, but within all of the human dynamics that contribute to a, a new internet and a new interconnection space is a need to set new ethics. And so we're, we're sorting towards it right now. And so we're seeing these very beautiful things that are coming out of it. And I, I think one of the things that Sedant touched on is this really like just astounding level of optimism. And the optimism is, is part of what has kept me in that space is that there is a critical optimism that I think will actually work towards solving the problems. And because of that, we are actually seeing people who are willing to continue failing and fail upwards and keep these very aspirational goals. You know, there's this great, I, I was speaking with Daniel earlier this weekend about this, this idea of the root question of optimism. What is optimism? Oh, optimism is optimizing. Optimizing for, you know, what your end goals should be. You keep your your intention tied into that optimism. So that's that's a huge part of what has me in Web3 and, and how it is that I see complexity sort of fitting into that space. Thank you. Shirley, you want to chime in? Oh, yes, I'd like to. So I think I, I have a question about, you know, I, I have a limited knowledge of Web3, but I understand some of the components and, and technologies that comprise it. And so a lot of these technologies are highly inequitable systems that, you know, I think, Michael, you, you mentioned David Wolpert in some of the unpleasant outcomes of machine learning. And so my question is really about, these are still the same components or technologies that are producing real harms in our society. So to what extent, you know, it, it could, th that's what I worry about when I see these charts is that it, could this also represent an acceleration of harms 
as they spread, because already artificial intelligence and machine learning, some examples are automated decision-making models. They are spreading into government, civil society, nonprofits. We even have automated decision-making algorithms for distributing benefits to people who are highly vulnerable in our society. And there is little recourse because a lot of this stuff is pretty black box. So it's, you know, how do we build on what we have when we have such unequal technologies? Excellent. Yeah, actually, you you took it directly into a place that, I mean, if other people want to stack on that, let me just stack this block first, which is, you know, working at the Santa Fe Institute. I am stewing constantly in the work of people like Jeffrey West, who has shown that, you know, the social reactor of a city basically accelerates innovation in this ratcheting way that he fears ultimately undermines the stability of the city itself. That he has this, he talks about the finite time singularity and says, I think he put his projections somewhere around 10 years from now, we're going to have to be innovating at something like one internet level advancement every six months, simply in order to stay on top of the sort of roiling collapse that we've created. And this is, you know, Zygmunt Bauman's liquid modernity talks about modernity, kind of a dual nature. One half of it is dedicated to control and then half of it is dedicated to radical transformation and that those are at odds with one another. And in fact, you know, systems of control tend to, you know, create blind spots. And so it's, you know, there's this, this sort of evolutionary arms race on an accelerating treadmill that I'm curious to hear about from other people, because the, the God's honest truth is that I too am extremely optimistic about the potentials of this latest layer of web technologies coming online. I think I was just lecturing a group of teenagers on Twitter this morning about why NFTs are not merely a scam, but a very important technology to consider if you are a young artist and how I wish that th this had been around when I was 17 or 18 years old. And so there is this question about, you know, are we simply swallowing the spider to catch the fly? I mean, especially if we know based on follow-up research done by other people, collaborators of, of Jeff West's. And he was, he was part of this paper on how cities increase inequality faster than they increase per capita income. And if what the web ultimately is, as it's made manifest, if what the web is really doing ultimately functionally is giving people in rural locations what are essentially urban social opportunities, then how is this not going to merely amplify the existentially threatening instability that we're already grappling with and that this is largely intended to solve. And I, you know, I'm I'm just being here in this in the position of I guess like a devil's advocate because I am deeply ambivalent about this stuff generally and I I would like to know kind of those who have given these concerns and Avel just to loop you in you know, one of these concerns is based on the question of social epistemology and the degree to which we can make sense together and therefore coordinate our action. And back in 2017, I was starting to look at blockchain as a possible solution to like deep fakes and accelerated counterfeiting. But like in a broader sense, you zoom out and what's going on right now looks a lot like what was going on 
you know, in a hundred or so years after the invention of the printing press, when, you know, pamphleteering and apocalyptic cults were taking over Europe and nobody could agree. And it seems like a very, very, you know, when you look at the blockchain as something that encourages forking, Park, to your point, there's only so many times you can walk away before, you know, everyone is standing on their, the peninsula of their own fork. And like, how can we deploy these technologies in a way that assists in the process of collective sense making rather than primarily just encouraging people to start their own reality tunnel you know so these like that's another huge broad set of topics i brought up but that's what matters to me now and i'm curious what what your thoughts are on that each of you Okay, so I see there are a lot of way to fork uh, from what you say. I will uh, focus on two uh, things that I find most important. The first is the idea that from Geoffrey West and Betancourt and other people research, societies are basically, how do you say that, places where innovation is strong, places that catalyze innovation. This is one idea. Another idea is that how NFTs and blockchain and things like that can catalyze and put under control this innovation. So this is, I will answer to these two things. The one first thing I want to say is that the kind of research that I read of West, which is a paper that are first authored by Betancourt. So, and I did not have time to read the full West book. So maybe I'm kind of off chart with regard to his actual message. But what I read of him is not uh, part of a meaningful exploratory scientific framework. I elaborate now. The core point of I, I read uh, of West is the idea that cities, most generally human settlements, they uh, verify uh, some sort of universal scanning laws with regard to uh, basically objective size, like the number of people or a surface on one hand, and on the other hand, infrastructure that scales sublinearly with size. And on another hand, things like uh, that are more abstract, like power innovation, that size super lightly with size. So this kind of laws, this kind of regularities are interesting objects that are subject to scientific explanation, but they are not scientific explanation. At least they have not been since the 50s and the uh, criticism by, I don't know, people like Wine and Popper of the uh, positivist first attempt at systemizing scientific knowledge. The received view that scientists share today outside some physicists is that we explain by calling out to mechanisms, we explain by calling out to structures, and we look at how a system is structured, and we look at what kind of behavior we expect given its structure, and we look at the context in which the behavior emerges, and this broad approach is an explanation. And then you have an accepted way in life sciences uh, to do so, which is mechanical modeling, but in principle, you can recruit different ways to get at this uh, broader understanding. And as far as I'm concerned, all of these are okay. And most importantly, it's much more difficult to get positive structural models in uh, sociology than it is in biology. So there is no way to expect sociology to abide by the law of uh, neuroscience or biology. So the idea that cities are forge of innovation in virtue of scaling law is, in my view, flawed. But now, something that is more interesting, in my view, is to look at the dynamics that explain the emergence of cities, which are dynamics of polarization, of polarization in uh, human settlements, of polarization in power, of polarization in economics, 
in the density of economic production, in innovation, in things that we are interested in. And basically, there, there are literally no reason to believe that there is a universal explanation for the emergence of cities. But you can look at patterns, you can look at dynamics. And to look at, there is no way we can map the whole history of the evolution of cities. Like people try to do that. It's very difficult to make very basic statement. But it's agreed that the fact that we focus economic and social activity in specific place, it affords at the same time for more tyranny because everyone that can be controlled is in the same place and more democracy because every place of power is at the reach of common people. So that's, I think, a core challenge of what it is uh, to live as societies that are organized in cities. And then NFTs, blockchain, cryptocurrencies, these things, they, can, they cannot like blow up everything and start anew. This is not like we need computers to blockchain. This is not the option. What I can do is interact in some specific systematized way with existing infrastructure, be it physical, social, political, I don't know. And the pattern that uh, I see that most send left of center continues to see with cryptocurrencies is that they are used for uh, speculation. They are used for uh, pump and dump uh, schemes. They're tools of libertarian ideology, which is interesting in some aspect, like we have Wikipedia, which is one of the most important key place of human knowledge, which is a libertarian aspect. But libertarians are just naive with regard to how markets can power and political asymmetries and failure in markets. So the view that you can just build uh, markets that are in principle not biased and expect no power asymmetry, no information asymmetry to occur is just, I have no political word to put this. I, I will say naive and it's an understatement. So what I expect from cryptocurrencies and uh, blockchain theorists is not a statement of principles on how great their cryptology is. It's a statement of systemic modeling that explains how their cryptocurrencies in our specific political context will help putting social life, economic life out of the reach of wannabe tyrants. And there are attempts to do that. There are things like, which are called, uh, I know this in French, like monnaie libre, which is free money, like money of freedom, which are money which have an embedded universal basic income in not the, that is redistributed to taxes, but that is embedded within the money generation system. So the argument is that if everyone generates money, we have more democracy in economics. And this is the sensible argument. Some, something no one knows, and that is hugely important, is that the statu quo is that private banks generate money. So you have dozens of executives in the world, no, more than that. You have a few executives in the world that basically addict guidelines on why we should generate money. And these guidelines are entirely centered around private profits, not public, private profits. So this is our uh, view. And you have uh, seeds, which is a cryptocurrency that is centered on what they call a regenerative renaissance or something, regenerative economy. And I'm still not clear how it works, but the core project idea is to somehow funnel money in places where it helps creating more resilience, uh, helping ecosystems uh, grow. So you have, I'm not aware, I'm aware of white papers for the frequencies that are convincing, but very minimal. And I am aware of no white papers for the currency, but that is the kind of thing I expect from cryptocurrencies advocates. 
I don't expect uh, proof and principles on uh, crypto or stuff. I trust, I basically trust them on this. This technology is now standard. Well, you have quantum computing, but this is a thing which I don't think is as important now. Mark, you care to respond to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of the critiques that are presented there are very important, right? And this is actually something we deal with in ter- um, like within the industry constantly is uh, this information asymmetry with people's familiarity with stuff, just everything. When someone invests in a cryptocurrency, they have to become familiar enough with the project to be able to feel like what they're doing with their investment, quote unquote, their investment, right, is actually educated enough to do it. And I don't think almost anyone has sufficient knowledge on any given protocol to be able to say that what they're doing is necessarily the right thing. Because uh, you you end up with this like obscurantism that comes from, there's, or not obscurantism, but like this obfuscating layer that comes from the, the, te- the technical nature of the work itself. And so the part of the work that I do is as a researcher trying to distill it for people who then want to invest in it with our services in, in, in the organization I'm a part of. And that's it's a very difficult problem to solve because it's it's not complicated technology in application, but it's complicated to describe its utility. And that's the part that is a little bit difficult and, and nuanced to, to translate is in order to be able to describe the impact of the systems that we're building in cryptocurrency, you need to have a familiarity with it. And in order to have a familiarity with, uh, familiarity with it, you have to have a willingness to become familiar with it, which means that in order to get past the crust of recognizing how it can be useful and that it's not just pumping up schemes and, and scams and all these different things. You have to, you have to already have made the decision to be a part of it and, and to dig deeper. And so, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot to be said there. There's a lot of truth there in that it's very difficult to get through the crust of scams and pumping up schemes and crypto bros who are just shilling coins and trying to make money and buy their Lambos, as they say, you know, like, but once you get past that, you do see that there are, for the most part, a lot of the people who are working on the core technology and the value proposition of a lot of the technology that's being presented in the space, there's just there's this phrase that I have never heard anyone say. I summarized it. It's my synthesis of the environment. It's we're not here for money. We're here to not need it. And I think that's something that I believe to be like a really core tenet that I'm seeing throughout the space, especially with those like who are building things like seeds, building regen network, building Ixo, building Gitcoin, is sure, you know, the value of a token goes up and you might have a ton of money. But what that means is you can redistribute energy from one part of the system into another part of the system. And you can create an entire new economy, a micro market around a solutioning event for trying to do something and create incentives. There's there's a lot of things that present themselves in, in, this, in this space as, as useful and they're not necessarily useful. But then there's a lot of things that are extremely useful, but to be able to explain the technology, to say how it is that it's useful outside of the cryptocurrency space, you have to go through an entire translation layer. And so it's, it's very difficult to get there. And as a result, I think there's a high probability or possibility of failure because how do you decipher this? And so there's a lot of different approaches that people are taking. You know, one of the things that people are trying to to take here is to maybe you can just kind of create a blanket around what cryptocurrency is and just focus on where the positive externalities touch the rest of everything else. There's this concept that we've explored a little bit in this last weekend is the idea of the internet as a nervous system for people. 
and for for society more widely. And and the the, the I think the the emphasis here needs to be focused on the idea that in order to have a nervous system, you need to have a body. The body must touch the rest of the world. That nervous system connects everything, sure, but it's not necessarily going to do anything without the other pieces of the body. It's supposed to be the connective layer, and I don't think we've necessarily figured out how to deploy that. And so Web three is probably our most genuine attempt to approach it and actually get to that place. Abel, did you want to respond to that before I hand the mic to Sudant? Yes, you say that internet will be the mind of Brian member of society. You have results, you have research in evolutionary biology that comes from the 80s, I think, and that we was really formalized in the 90s to 2000s on evolutionary transition how you get agents, collective agency, to emerge from uh, collective systems. The most important researcher in this is Eva Jablonka, I think, which is also a ponder for epigenetics and more generally the idea of evolutionary information. And something she says is that the emergence of specialized information processing cells in the animal bodies is one of the big transitions. And it's a transition that made things more efficient, more efficient. It's a historically specialized information systems that have existed in human societies. There are states, there are administrative systems that are pretty much tied in a specific political system where a specific part of the population was uh, dominant. And it is possible to imagine states that are purely democratic, but this is not what happened. Like even states that we call democratic, that are liberal democracies, that were designed in the French Revolution with the specific intent in mind to keep uh, democracy from happening, to prevent the people at large to have a say in society by uh, introducing the election as a way to claim representation without having uh, to have peasants interfering with our politics. And uh, the idea that the web has uh, completely, as a way of information processing that is entirely decoupled from administrative sector is pretty radical and pretty interesting because it could, in principle, constitute a purely decoupled kind of information processing that could be the nervous system of some other body, some other way of organizing society. And this is uh, radical. This will be a radical shift. And uh, we agree, so I don't need to argue on that. But we need ways to actually implement this. And this is not easy because the people who have the power and money are specifically people who need this not to happen. So I don't know what the future gives. Yeah, you are willing to, yeah, whatever I have said, what I need to say. Please take speech as you see fit. Thank you. Sid? Yeah, before I say, does Bart have to say anything in quick response to that? Yeah, I, I just, the, the last point that you made, Avil, there is like, you know, this is, you want to make sure that people who have too much power aren't going to be able to control the system. They can't with this system. The greatest thing is all they are is a source of energy. They might like if in a well-designed blockchain, and we have, we're very early in the process of designing a lot of these things in a well-designed blockchain, and we will get there at some point, the amount of currency that you have in the system will not be the reason you have an influence on the system. It, it doesn't necessarily, it, it allows you to be an, a source of energy for how it is that the system will grow, that, that particular protocol will grow. But, that doesn't mean you have necessarily like 
a determining structure. It's We can still work towards a digital democracy that will provide space for people to consider what you're saying instead of just going with it because you have the most tokens, you know, and that's that's something that I that comes to mind here. And, and I just really don't think that's going to be the future that will happen in this space because ideally it won't be possible. Should we speak an audience from now or do we need? Yeah, Michael. Okay, so you say that having uh, coins should not or will not be warranty power of the system. But if we allow uh, trade in coin, like free trade between coins, I'm speaking euros and dollars as well as bitcoins and, and things, someone who has enough coins and most importantly, someone who has enough clout, enough fame, can just decide to crash a coin because they'd like to. So I, you need a safeguard against it. And to get to that, you need to 51% attack. Like I'm mentioning for people who follow that Spark said, 51% attacks, yes. Which, uh, as I understand, are attacks where someone takes control of more than half of the servers that control a coin system. This is specifically not what I'm speaking about. I'm speaking about uh, cases that where the rules by which the coin evolve are respected and they entail the ability to trade the coin for other coin. In that case, if I have like, I don't know, one or even uh, other one percent of the coin and that I sell them and as I say the coin is shit and I sell them to enough people, the coin is dead and this happens to uh, shit coin all the time. I think a mask destroyed or at least make it fluctuate a lot. And this is things that cannot possibly happen for coin that are meant to underlie actual social economic infrastructure. So if you keep the libertarian ethos of blockchain, of cryptocurrencies, and you keep the capability to, to trade them basically, and to uh, have free market, okay, quote to that, of information over them, and you keep that coupled to the capitalist system, you did not leave capitalism, you gave a new playground to capitalism. And uh, you need ways to get out of it. And I don't say there aren't one. So, for example, you have the uh, local money, which are sometimes cryptocurrencies, sometimes a badly printed piece of papers where uh, the money is tied to a territory. And uh, so it's basically forbidden or at least not practical of use outside the uh, specific territory of, say, Lyon for the Gonet. And prevent speculation because who will want to speculate on things that are only valuable in one place? At least... Leo, like you could have speculators within Lyon because it's a big city, but you can do the same for Stur-sur-Cher uh, or for uh, Damas or wherever no one wants to invest. So this is this provides a safeguard against speculation, and but this is a kind of headfrontly opposed to the idea that you have you can trade and ex exchange information freely because it ties the currency to a specific place and a specific network, and this is. As I understand, and maybe you will show me wrong, not at all the ethos in which most coins are thought of today. You brought up something I'm actually very, very eager to discuss, but maybe we should put a pin in the question of how do we reconcile, you know, at least sort of rhetorically indefinite scalability of digital goods with the organic constraints of our actual biosphere. I do want to return to that, but I want to make sure Sid, that you get a word in here if you want it. Yeah, sure. So I think we need cynics in this space. And most of us who seem like radical optimists, we 
lose sleep at night thinking about all the ways these things can go wrong. So, like, we might be radical optimists in uh, podcasts like these, but all the discussions behind the scenes are all about how do we make how do we make this not go down those routes which the cynics are always talking about. So, firstly, we need healthy skepticism in this space, and uh, we are not Web three crusaders or something. There will be a Web four. There will be a Web five. And we all would move to better systems, just like there was a Web one and Web two. So Web three is still so early that it's easy to poke criticisms at it. Like Bitcoin's white paper just had its thirteenth anniversary two two weeks back. So like Bitcoin, which is the first true form of digital currency, is essentially a teenager. Just became a teenager. and we are still to go into we are still yet to see the rest of the aspects of evolution of society so when i started my talk i told you about technology economics culture and policy we are still in that economic evolution stage where the mercenaries have started to come in get financial advantages out of it and the missionaries on the other hand are trying to build better systems and um, build it in a way that's different from previous systems so i would like to quote buckminster fuller here like to change something build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete now why is that important for the digital world because uh, the digital world does not follow the laws of physics like it is not constrained to the laws of the physical biological world as we know it so all the financial systems that we had earlier backed by gold or backed by a physical asset then backed by government reserve currency i mean all those are evolutionary steps that took many years to understand the uh, problems in the systems but now we are so early and we are evolving so fast that we have the programmable power and the creativity to come up with these with solutions to these systems solutions to these decentralization dilemmas that avil has been bringing up and park has been responding to it so i would like to say why blockchains make sense like and it relates to the title of the podcast like blockchains are the easiest digital equivalent to a fossil like blockchains are future fossils just like fossils capture information from geological ages back into the like early aspects of of life on earth similarly blockchains are a time chain like they record uh, the events as they occurred in a very orderly manner and you cannot change it just like the physical world so blockchains are the closest thing we have to physical models in the digital space with the, with all the benefits of the digital world so that that i think is a great place to segue into how do we marry the benefits of physical world properties like immutability and blend it with the creativity that the programmable digital world offers so we can get into nfts and other such concepts now which are changing society and interconnections and building that body and nervous system and all the synthetic intelligence that uh, park has been mentioned so so i would like to open the floor to to those aspects of of the blockchain definitely thank you i i really uh hope that we get there but i want to make sure shirley's got her hand up yes um i may come across as a cynic here but i actually am not i'm very positive about technology and really looking for ways in which it can improve people's experience and in particular marginalized communities but one thing that really struck me said about what you just said is if i've captured it correctly the digital excuse me digital world is not constrained by physics in my mind it it is in the sense that most of us don't really think about what goes into 
these technologies. So some work that is more recent, ghost work by Mary Gray, as well as Kate Crawford, excuse me, the Atlas of AI. And I know that many actually scholars have contributed to that work. So I just point out that she has a book recently about it. But, um, you know, all of the minerals, all of the materials from the physical world, but most importantly, the people, <laughs> the people that go into the technology that are not seen is really important. So people all around the globe who are basically providing, you know, in, in a sense, well, actually, we all are providing the raw materials and data that power, you know, different AI and machine learning systems. And there is this. On the one hand, yes, this this idea that if we could own our data, if we could, if there could be less control, centralized control, then that could be helpful. But I just, I really think it's important to remember that the physical world is definitely part of the digital world in that sense. And in fact, they, they it works together again in a feedback loop. Yeah, I just like to yeah, chip in right there. Oh, uh, Sid, you. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I never said the physical world is not part of the dig digital world. I said it's not constrained by the laws of physics in the same way that the physical world is. And that changes the nature of society. For example, if you attended a physical workplace 50 years back, now you can just open a browser tab and open 10 browser tabs and work for 10 different companies. So you are not physically restricted in your physical human form as your community and restricted to your physical surroundings. And that's what I mean by uh, the digital world not being restricted by the constraints of physics. So this is actually, this is great because we're, we're at what I would consider a, like an acupressure point in this, this, this whole conceptual rat king that we've, <laughs> we've created for listeners. And it has to do, you know, one of the major inspirations for this podcast was Douglas Rushkoff's book, Present Shock, When Everything Happens Now, which is a look at the history of the development of our ideas of time in Western civilization and the current state of crisis due to the dissonance between the specific constraints of the digital realm and the differing constraints of the physical. And so like, w thank you for finding y'all's way into this node. Cause I mean, this, this is interesting to me. Sid, you just you made the point, you know, you can have 10 tabs open and work for 10 different companies, but it is also true for me as a, a knowledge worker that I've recognized in myself that may be theoretically true, but in practice, it becomes immensely difficult to manage the relationships across different organizations and to manage my attention and the allocation of my attention and the real constraints around task switching and the, the ostensible 23 minutes it takes to, to actually change stream and fully devote your attention to a new task when you've been disrupted. Noah Allaire, a friend of a friend in Albuquerque, wrote a really interesting piece about the the effects of COVID-19 on our memory. He wrote a piece called Not Going Places that I'll, I'll link to in the show notes, where he was talking about how episodic memory is, is sliced into the episodes by movement through physical space. You know, like that this is why humans organize their lives so much according to ritual is because, you know, stepping across a given threshold is an indication to your your uh, hippocampus, you know, that this is where you end one narrative arc and you begin another. And we don't 
have that when we are under lockdown and increasingly the question of how stuff like the 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 so-called metaverse is going to affect our ability to navigate space and time is sort of like related to questions to to move this into a more general kind of inquiry it's related to questions around you know the worlds that people have imagined for autonomous vehicles and like the idea that you'll just be able to like have a car that's an apartment and you'll wake you'll go to sleep and you'll wake up in a different city and like you know these kinds of things and the question of you know this gets back to stuff that you had said park earlier about the inferential gap that people have to cross and even to even begin to feel as though they're making informed decisions about technologies that are evolving as fast as these are. And this foregrounds for me, again, it foregrounds for me problems with epistemology, you know, under these conditions and the, the fact that things are changing so rapidly. And one of the major themes that we've had on, on this show since very, very early on is the problem of how do you even recognize or assign expertise when things are changing this fast you know and it, and then again you know relatedly just not that this conversation needs any more any more like doomer kind of thinking but i will say that you know there i've had this critique leveraged against the uh, immortalist transhumanist subcult for years which is that even if it is theoretically possible for humans to live forever biologically, the technological ecosystem that would support that must change so fast that we would have to change unprecedentedly fast in order to keep up with it, rendering the immortality of a psychological self a moot point. That like, even if we can get something, you know, there's a lot of things that look like you can reach them, but they're on the the other end of a a, a critical threshold that makes actually obtaining them impossible. And so I think, you know, to your point, Avel, about, you know, like the way that, you know, the actual knock-on effects of some of these systems looks and ends up looking very different from the intended effects. That's, that's of interest to me. But so, yeah, I mean, this is just, I don't know what else to say about it, except that, you know, I think that in the conversations that I've been having about NFTs specifically lately. One of the things that seems to be underappreciated by both proponents and detractors is our need to identify ways to restore real world forms of scarcity in the digital environment. You know, like if you think about Karen Wilcox at the University of Texas in Austin, whose work focuses on digital twins and like this idea that that something can have a unique and indeterminate and real-time updated digital token of itself that is you know is useful like this seems like that's that kind of scientific research into complex systems and the nft thing are converging somewhere which is about how do we actually use the tools of the digital environment in a more ergonomic way with the acknowledged constraints on human time, attention, cognition, and the material resources that we actually are dealing with. And so like, where is it appropriate to use the internet as Kevin Kelly has discussed it as this like amazingly efficient copying machine and to pursue the, the, the new rules for a new economy that he outlined in his book in the nineties. And where is it appropriate to look at what is essentially artificial digital scarcity 
as a form of honesty about what limits we actually face. So yeah, I don't know if that's the specific question people are interested in answering here, but I'm, I am curious to know your thoughts on this, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of things you touched on there that I thought were really great. I mean, the the main one I think I want to address is something that I know uh, Sedant and I have encountered, which is, you know, there's this narrative of like, if you want to learn about Web3, join a DAO, like join a decentralized um, autonomous organization. And it's like, get, like, join as many as you can. And it's like, okay, great. You're going to be split across all of these different things. But what I have noticed in doing so is, uh, and, and as a result, you get no expertise, right? But I have noticed in 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 doing so, is that you do see people differentiate into their sometimes, which is uh, which I hope we we need to like we need to enforce and recommend people do more often is allow people the space to differentiate into their capacity. And so so without being like obscure with the way I'm saying that, when you differentiate into your capacity, I mean, how much work can you do for the space? For the work that you're doing, how much how much work can you do for the particular component that you're a part of? And we're still figuring out me- measurement mechanisms when it comes to decentralized um, autonomous organizations and how to codify them. And one of the issues that comes up a lot is people getting jobs that are getting roles that are defined as full time jobs or part time jobs or things like that. And that quantification is is very loose. And it means that people are expected to devote so much time to it. One of the great things that we do at Gitcoin uh, as one as one of the librarians there. I only have to work two hours a week, you know, like that's, that's, that's how much work I do there. I, I still work for Gitcoin. I still, I still, I still aid the forwarding of the organization, but the amount of work I do is, is quantified. And, and unfortunately, the reason that I'm able to do so in my particular circumstances, because what I do is I facilitate discussions and the discussions are one to two hours. So it's perfect, right? Um, there's a little bit of like for work that comes with finding people to speak in the groups and things like that. But so on the coattails of this idea of like the the attention economy and like people like, you know, working continuously, living on the Internet, doing everything on the Internet is also I think people need to start differentiating their capacity and recognizing how much effort they can put into things. And that's a lot harder. And the on on the on the sort of the back end of that is also this recognition that maybe the idea of individuality and expertise in a single individual is less relevant. It, that's, that's more charismatic, right? Like, oh, you want to be an expert in something. And maybe there, there is value in being able to pursue something to a level of expertise and be an authority on a certain set of knowledge. But, you know, being, being an expert in a certain thing may not be as important as making sure the thing is growing, if that makes sense, helping the system grow itself. And so there's some, you know, transhumanist sort of logic that comes in there. And, and of course, there's some fear of the loss of the individual. But I actually think there is also a little bit of saving of the individual and doing, allowing people to sort of plug and play their abilities and their skills into like particular environments for the quantified amount of work that they can do for the contribution of the larger system without actually having to devote their entire selves to it and reach this like sort of overload of contribution. And I think that's part of how work is being reformulated more generally. It's happening within crypto, sure, but it's also happening just as a result of of remote work. People can work. Some people do work two jobs, three jobs at the same time because they can just open up a bunch of browser tabs. That's fine. You know, they found out that they can work that amount and get paid that amount. If they can manage it, that's great. But that's that's a logic we have to figure out is just sort of differentiating the capacity down down to the basic level. Yeah, there's some some other stuff I could touch on when it comes to like NFTs and creating local economies. But really, that's the main thing I think is is the reason the reason that uh, Web three is so interesting when it comes to um, complex systems is that you can have people have minimal input and the still still the larger system will grow. 
and still will uh, become its own thing. And everyone gets to contribute to it and it just uh, grows in its own way. So, you know. If anybody wants to jump on that, speak now, or I'm going to let Park go on into the, the question of NFTs and local economics. Because yeah, I think, yeah, that's, that's, you know, that, that is where I think all of us are of an, a cohort of people that realize and, and have found the language to, to describe this in terms of complex system science, why scalability and, you know, global standardization and these sort of related web one rhetorical stances are not necessarily desirable and like that there's this there's this movement away from large social platforms to things like discord you know and and i feel like people in the way that mass capture phishing has skewed the evolution of schooling fish to smaller schools that are less desirable targets for big net operations i think that there's something going on now where that like the the polarization that you spoke to Avil that is like the maybe like the product of cities if we can you know think of it in that way the prime product is it's not always bad and there are certainly cases where scattering into smaller and more manageable groups is desirable I don't know I don't know that I needed to say any of that to facilitate <laughs> this but you know that's yeah please well um, I was I was going to say I just would love to hear from Shirley on the idea of local economics a little bit more and, and sort of seeing if micro local economics can make sense and then maybe I can kind of obviously Avil as well can kind of jump in and, and contribute some color on how we're seeing a lot of these like quote-unquote local economics happen within our space as well yeah, I think that's an interesting question. And um, actually, I attended Sid's session last night where I was bringing up, you know, inaccessibility to the internet in the United States. That there are so many communities, you know, and also correlated with poverty and, you know, infrastructure issues uh, as well, but a lot of inaccessibility. So, it, from my perspective, it's interesting because, yeah, it's. Uh, Wow. <laughs> I don't know. It's yeah, I think it's promising. But some of the things part that you brought up about on the one hand there's so much learning and translation and uh, you know a lot of of heavy lift around some of these technologies to understand. And so yeah, I mean bringing that to a local area where people Perhaps there's a core of people who who have the experience and then want to disseminate and bring in local communities is really important. As opposed to, I think, obviously, someone coming in who is not part of the community, you know, or or, or trying to impose something is really important. So, yeah, Sid was was showing us in the session, you know, mesh networks and things like that, and and that was something that I had actually really was only thinking about in other countries. So that, you know, yeah, uh, my, my awareness is being increased. And so, yeah, that, that could be a possibility. Yeah, and that speaks to the power of the internet. The internet does not discriminate. If any community wants to adopt networking services, it is up to them to set up a mesh network and eventually connect it to it. If there is inaccessibility in any part of the world, a major reason of that could be the flaws in the physical systems that existed before. 
So like the programmable power of these cyber physical commons that we are building, public goods for cyber spaces and physical spaces that allow us to create these incentive structures where people can set up their mesh network and be incentivized and rewarded for it. For example, there are projects which let people run their own node, which lets them share the network capabilities to other regions. So yeah, we can, I think this is a good segue into NFTs and the programmable power of these digital assets and digital technology. So the example of sharing your network and sharing physical infrastructure with communities which do not have access to it is just one example of that. And JPEGs and right-click and save NFTs and all those memes around just artwork-based NFTs is just one small aspect of it. We can get into the full realm of creativity, which programmability and composability and interoperability offers us in this piece. So yeah, we can open it, open it up to that. Can I ask what is probably an offensively naive question to some of you and a, a matter of dire concern to the, the rest of you? I, I think typically when people talk about technology, what they mean is everything that was invented since they were in middle school or like wherever you draw the line, it's, it's about that, which has come up since you like sausaged off your training data. And now you're in an environment where things are surprising you and not making any sense. And consequently, I see a lot of people talking about this layer of things as a Ponzi scheme. To me, zooming out to look at this as generally as possible, it strikes me that there are always disproportionate rewards to early adopters when things go well, but that you're also looking at a massive survivorship bias. So I've been thinking about it more in terms of like, well, how is civilization itself not a Ponzi scheme, right? Or perhaps another way of articulating this question would be that no matter how rich our economic models, there are always aspects of the world that are illegible to our models. And therefore there are always externalities. There's always invisible labor. Like theoretically, someone is always getting screwed. Theoretically, ultimately, you know, to the extent that that energy is conserved, profit in an unpleasant way of putting this, all profit is uh, on some level theft. You know, I mean, those are radical positions, and I may sound like I'm moralizing here, but as a an obligate participant in this system, I'm not trying to judge anyone else any more harshly than I judge myself. And the question of how it is that we can design systems using these tools that do not merely amplify and accelerate the characteristics that I've just acknowledged, but allow us to compute more evenly together across time scales so as to distribute our incentives in such a way that we're not borrowing against the livelihoods of our children or the future of the biosphere. I'm not sure that this, I mean, I've had, I've talked about this with Gregory Landua of Regen Network. You know, I think it's a very noble mission, but ultimately I've had other people like Sophia Rockland on Future Fossils who point out that ecosystem services ends up just financializing things in a way that could ultimately be very disruptive to their persistence. And then also we may be missing the ability to track, you know, to quantify and, and, and analyze and act upon other forms of key information. So and I bring this all up again, you know, surely just to give you a, like a foothold here, 
in your thinking and your work on inequality in the city and specifically about, you know, like path dependency. I mean, I think luckily, you know, people like Kevin Awoki who helped develop Ethereum, people like that are moral leaders in a space that I think it really matters that these people are, are so committed to public good. But then again, Ben Franklin says, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And we, if anything, all of us sitting in this conversation should have, I think, a basic epistemic humility about what, especially given what you've said, Park, about the learning curve required to even acknowledge, like to know whether you're putting your, your investments in the right place. You know, these are very complicated, difficult concerns. And I'm, I'm curious where each of you stands in with respect to this and then that maybe that's like the place to end this because you know we're coming up on an hour and a half if i can the uh first issue brought something that i've been uh bringing myself not to react upon for the last 25 minutes which is that uh, we call something a technology only if we do not understand it the fact is humans are cyborgs humans are extended cognition beings that understand and manipulate their words their worlds through extreme means. And every single branching in this space has consequences. If you use plow and uh, you use, I don't know, rice, which is kind of a combined uh, technology that both physical strength and build basically the need for collective action, you will get a system that is relatively qualitarian. If you use, I don't know, you say this in English, but those cards with oxys that someone needs to manipulate to a plow and material that needs a lot of post-processing like uh, wet, you will facilitate a system where men outside working with animals and women are inside doing shit. And you will uh, emphasize the core idea, men get control of the political system. And this is something that is not neutral. So NFTs, uh, cryptos, etc., etc. They are not neutral either. They will intersect with political system. They will have consequences. And here we branch on another ID, which is, I forgot, so I move on to my second point, which is that basically there is one core reason. Oh, yeah, you said that there is something, always something that is left outside, basically, like citizen tail growth, citizen tail at least inequality, and the fact there is organization entails that there is things left outside. So this is both very true and very false in two that ways that basically to entail organization, this is to entail that we will agree on way to do things and to measure things and to etc. etc. And this entail that all of the potential ways that we could do things and organize and measure things will be left out. So this entails a reduction of the state pace. This entails a vision. And basically I uh, I urge people to look into uh, especially Andy Clark work on cyborgs and on predictive processing because I cannot articulate this now. But if you need to get a grip on the world, you need to pick a way to understand the world. This is not things that are that can be decoupled. So you need to leave things outside. But the fact that we get experts, we get specific people into specific place of power where they are gifted with the uh, privilege to understand a specific way of doing things and to have authority on it. This is a choice. This is a historical choice that I will not either uh, spend like minutes on it, but it's especially extreme in some civilization, uh, modern Europe being one of them. 
and by some accounts, the most extreme one. And we could, we can pretty well build ways of uh, deciding and understanding that are collective and that are basically built upon community of interest. And this is not only a way to build internet communities that work, this is necessary to get people to be motivated, to give them stakes. And you have basically two ways to give people stake. Either uh, you relate this to something that they live, and that is driven to, the, to their basically. I think we lost you. Oh, no. I mean, I think that there's something to be mentioned here, if I can jump in a little bit and just sort yeah, of please. Um, guide us towards the landing strip, is sort of this. There is something very important to recognize when it comes to technological optimism, when it comes to something like being a, a zealot for Web3, which is that this is better than anything else, but it doesn't mean it works. And just recognizing, you know, like having this critical optimism or this radical optimism uh, around what it is that this technology can mean is just really recognizing that there are characteristics of this system that fix a lot of the problems we see with current systems outside of this space, outside of Web3 and, and, and outside of the traditional use of the internet in Web2. And I think the main thing that comes to mind here is recognition that what it allows us to do is flatten the access and it allows people to be involved a lot more easily. So of course, like, you have to keep in mind here that like you have to have access to the internet, but hopefully that's something that is also flattening in its capacity to do. You just need some way to interact with an interface that has a connection to the wider uh, internet, right? The wider web. So maybe that takes a, a, a little bit of flexible defining there. But the fact of the matter is it's it's kind of like that that adage about a democracy that's always attributed to like any one of many thinkers, which is democracy is the worst system of governing, but is better than all the other systems. And it's, it's kind of a similar thing. I think of, you know, like at least we have a way, we have this space that is creating an optimism and affording involvement in economy to everyone who has the ability to contribute. So in that way, it's not necessarily like an acceleration of stance of, of thinking that, you know, this is going to solve all of society's problems. It's rather, it, it gives us a chance to think about whether or not it can. Interesting. Thank you. Sid? Yeah, like we have a saying in Web3 communities that blockchains like Bitcoin and Ethereum are layer one and people are layer zero. So everything is built with the help of communities and individuals, these collective like stewardships and facilitation of projects and communities of practice like Complexity Weekend are very important to uh, think about these topics and go towards that goal. So, so yeah, I mean, keeping an open mind with technologies that Shirley has mentioned, she has also mentioned technologies like AI and machine learning, which which have their own challenges and benefits to society. So. We have to think of all of these in a holistic manner while keeping the physical world in our viewpoint as well. Like I know there is an appeal to go to the digi digital world because the limits of social scalability are not as uh, restrictive as the physical world, but we have to be both hyper-local as well as be connected to our internet community. And that's where the world is going. Thank you. Shirley, you want to lead us home? <laughs> Oh, yeah. So, well, yeah, right. Just kind of riffing on what Park had said also about, you know, we're not saying this is going to solve all the world's problems or whatever. I do think it's important with anything we do to think about what could go wrong. I know you've, you've said also that there are sleepless nights. That's across the board. And when I'm talking about technology, no, I'm not talking about the hammer or the whatever, you know, the 
the factory or whatnot, but I am talking about digital technologies. And yeah, when I work in communities and see what people are wanting and interested in and trying to resolve in their communities, there, there isn't a lot of, uh, I think, focus on, on what we've talked about today, but there are some uh, real concerns about harms. So I, I think definitely including the community and getting feedback from people directly about what they think is really important. Yeah, I kind of want to also just maybe bring something that is in, in, in with what it is you're saying, which is like there is a predominant perspective that this is sort of an exclusive space that are, and this being this space, meaning like Web3, it is, it, it is exclusive. And part of that is also the familiarity border that we've been talking about. Right. Which is kind of like being able to get through that level of familiarity to even be a part of the space. And that's a completely valid critique because, I mean, who does this space serve? What does it actually serve? Who is it actually helping? And that's true for any sort of technology and any sort of approach to solving problems. Right. And I mean, like uh, m my background is in anthropology and I, I focused on economic development when I, was, when, when I was doing my studies. And that's a that's a huge thing is people will try to pre create solutions for an environment. And then the people who are like, why did you solve it this way? This isn't what we wanted. And so I think I think part of it is also just making sure that the making sure that the structures are considering that from the first right out at the out, outset, right? Like you have to make sure that the technology is considering that at the outset. And I truly think that there are a lot of people in the space who are in, in at least in crypto who are trying to do that. It's not where the predominant economy is. I think that's sure. That's for that's like, that's for certain. But I think a lot of people who are creating the technology are considering that. Anyone else? Avel, you, we, we lost you there. If you, yep. you care to, to ring us out, I know that you missed most of the people's closing thoughts, but if you, if you personally have anything that you'd like to say before we wrap this. Yeah, so I was left at saying that you can basically build systems of engagement around the motivation uh, of helping people take control of their lives are on taking profit of taking control of other people's life. And this is not neutral. And this is branching that any technology has uh, to have. I think there is a sociologist called Mumford made a distinction between democratic and technocratic technologies. I don't remember the terminology, but it is uh, one of the other guys who work on cities as an enforcerical construct, but whatever. And the core point is that if you have technologies that are uh, meant to prolong human governance, they can uh, take over existing institutions that are failing, and this is good. But this has to go with stakes. This has to go with the idea that people who take decisions have stakes. And this basically means that functioning institutions, functioning governance systems, uh, should be expected to map onto communities of interest, which are often local things like cities, like companies, like places where you have uh, families and friends and specific parks that some people want to keep some way and some people want to change in some way. And this is why, basically, I'm very uh, skeptical on the whole uh, crypto ecology because the very fact that it integrates people from all around and that it's, it is meant to do so entails the capability for exploitation. And so this is not something that is built into the technology. This is something that is built into what we make of it. And you have technologies that are participative and that are specifically meant to solve uh, political issues. Taiwan 
is pretty much known from, for having a very participative democracy that is uh, powered by uh, computational means. Barcelona is too. And uh, you have more and more and more and more cities that are using the CDIM, that is the software that is used for Barcelona for participation, for democratic participation. But the common trait of these technologies is that they are built around a concrete need for taking decisions for solving a synchronization problem. And this is not the case for Bitcoin. This is not the case for Ethereum. This is not the case for Gitcoin, as far as I know. This is not the case for NFTs or any other thing we discuss now. So these are good as innovation platform. I'm not arguing against technology. It's not a meaningful statement. But right now, I am very skeptical of these things as they are pretty now becoming mainstream or useful or in the zeitgeist. And I'm still waiting for people to make demonstration that they are part of social changes that are both credible and positive. All right. Well, I think it takes a special kind of person to make it this far in any conversation, much less a, a conversation that leaves things as unresolved as this one. And I want to thank everybody who has sat in on this panel, everyone who has helped organize it at a Complexity Weekend, and uh, everyone who's listened for sitting with me here with your hand in the damn box, you know, and the needle on your neck, as it were, and and simply being with the tension inherent in a conversation like this. I deeply enjoyed it, and, and I hope that everyone else got as much out of it as I did, and I'm looking forward to releasing it soon. Let's stay in conversation about this. If any of you are interested, I'm easy to find. And I look forward to going deeper and, and understanding each of you more. So thank you. Thank you so much for having us in the discussion. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Reminder to stay tuned and subscribe for over the next few weeks. I'll be going deeper into these and related questions in conversations with Jim Rutt, the Cabin Dow, and others. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram, and patrons can hop into the members-only Facebook group and Discord server. Holler if you have any questions, and have a most excellent week. <laughs>